0: I loved that feeling somebody got when I made them feel better. It was just such a secret source. It was a magical thing to be able to, to share. That was my side hustle.
1: And it was really
0: my thing that made me feel
1: the happiest. Welcome to the Women on the Move podcast. I'm your host, Sam Saperstein. Today, I'm speaking with Trini Woodall, CEO and founder of global beauty brand, Trini London. She's also a best-selling author, mother, and TV personality. We discussed the company's unique approach to personalization and its mission to give customers the confidence to be their best. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Cherni, thank you so much for being with us on our Women on the Move podcast. It's great to have you on today. Very happy to be here.
0: You know, I I, I feel that it's odd because I do podcasts and and I do them with, with different people and I've never done them with a bank. But funding your bank at the very beginning for me was so supportive. And I remember I met one of my first investors through a lunch that J.P. Morgan gave. So I kind of feel this really nice growth of a relationship. I'm so happy to be here.
1: Well, thank you. We're happy to hear that. So I would love to talk with you about so many things, and we're going to get to your business in a minute, but many of our listeners also love to hear a good career story, and yours is a fantastic one. So let's start with that. You started your career in finance, and you've made your way clearly into beauty and fashion for so long now. So. What made you start in finance and how did you move into these other industries?
0: I was somebody who was not a top performer at school. I was very much motivated by my passion of the time. So my family were not a family who were. Uh, I didn't have the concept of a tiger mother. My father, on the other hand, actually became the chairman of a bank when he was in his early 30s. And he had very early success from coming from not that much after the war, went to Canada and worked in a stockbroking house and then came back and became the chairman of a bank in England. I grew up as a sixth child in his two marriages, and I kind of was always like, I'm here. Hi. And I thought, well, why don't I go into finance? Because that's a way I can have these after dinner conversations with my father where I have some relevance to contribute to the conversation. I was terrible at school and I hardly passed my GCSEs, which is before you do your sort of SATs. And then I did A-levels and I think I got one and a half basically. So I didn't start with much, but I had that determination. And I thought, okay, I can't, I don't have the qualification as a graduate program to go into a nice bank. So I'll go. And I started as a secretary in a physicals commodities trading house. And it was that real physicals commodities time. And I remember Trading Place had come out then, you know, there was that very amusing film with Eddie Murphy. And then I sort of then found myself a year and a half later, working as one of a sales team in futures, commodity futures and doing kind of learning you know, I did my Series 3 Chicago Mercantile Exchange exams, which I failed, but that didn't stop me to continue in the job. You know, I was a, a total failure. You know, people grow into the knowledge of, of labels and, and take them on a totally new ride. For me, it was just I didn't feel I had the right to be there and I wanted to be there. So I did persevere at it, but I got very caught up. It was the 1980s. It was a crazy You know, I was a very sociable person. I got far more caught up in the fun of life. And then I lost my sort of passion for a career. And I ended up taking a year out when I was 25. And and when I sort of came back to London, suddenly very nervous, very raw, like a peeled back onion. And I, for the first time where I felt I'd already lived an entire life, I thought, what do I actually want to do? The one consistent thing that I'd always loved, I had loved making over my girlfriends. Simplest thing, I lived abroad a broader little bit of my life, so I always had slightly more exotic clothing or more fun, and I loved that feeling somebody got when I made them feel better. It was just such a secret source. It was a magical thing to be able to, to share. That was my side hustle. And it was really my thing that made me feel the happiest. When that progressed and when I was working in that male environment, and then it was, I was one woman with a 59 men in a, uh, on the trading floor and they would all get their suits made on the trading floor and then the tailor would come in and I would go in the ladies' loo and he would make my suit, you know, and I couldn't really afford him. So I'd sort of buy one suit and get copied and put buttons on from somewhere and buy my shoes in, in a men's shoe store. I mean, I had this real need to fit in, All right, I kind of was also buying things that were very inexpensive and changing them a bit and finding little finds. And everyone, I had a lot of friends and they would come to my home and they would say, where'd you get that? And I would, I'd make them over all the time. I just loved it. So I realized when I was 25, why why can't I find a career that would actually allow me to do what I love?
1: That is great. I mean, your passion just jumps right out. And the fact that you're doing something today that is so core to what you love doing at such an early age and for so long, you can just tell. I mean, that, that is really amazing. Now, over time, of course, you did so much with that. You did television, you're an author of books, you've written blogs, articles. How did that all come together? How did you go into so many different outlets? Did one feel like an extension of another? Did they all sort of come naturally? How did you choose what to do?
0: You know, when we look at respective retrospectively over many people's careers, you sort of think it happens quickly. But when you're in that moment, it happens much slower. It was two things. It was sort of, it, it happened slowly and evolved. I never kind of had this master plan because then you don't adapt, you don't grow with those changes. You know, there's something, a lot to be said. And I was reading about, with my team recently, about that sense of a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. And I think that when I was at that stage, I was really wanting to think, okay, I love doing this. I had one lucky break. I met Susanna. She was in a crossroads in her career, my sort of partner in crime for 15 years. She worked writing about women's cricket in a paper, which is like New York Times, or Daily Telegraph. They wanted a new columnist. They said, why don't you do motor cars and fashion? We said, that's a really bad idea, but we could do fashion that's accessible for women. And so we did that column. And so we got about 2 million readers a week, and we had a whole page. So that then was as powerful maybe as as a good Instagram account of the same number of figures. It gave you that visibility, which allowed us then to come to the attention of a woman who was starting Sky B, which turned into Sky, and she was wanting to get cheap television programming, so we did one show with her, disaster, made in our home, made for $700, but it gave us exposure to TV, which then the BBC saw, so in between that, the internet became quite exciting, and we had our column, we were doing well on it, we'd brought out one book, I I really I actually want to do an online business and it was 89 and it was you know that middle of that dot-com boom and I kind of felt it would be great that there would be a place for women to come to online where you could find out information and it would look at you and it would look at your body shape and it would tell you where you could go and buy a dress so you might say I'm a size 10. I want to buy a red dress. I want it to cost no more than $100. And I had got a little CD from Cable & Wireless for the Horse Whisperer. And it said e or something Cable & Wireless. So I thought this company, Cable & Wireless, that I knew nothing about, have something to do with an eCom com technology to facilitate payments online. And, and if you want to do something online, at some stage, there will be online payments. This is like, you've got to think back early, early enough to realize when there's no transactions on the internet. So we go and see this woman, Jill Street. I will never forget her name because of the circumstance. And we're, we picture the idea and she says, how much money do you think you need to start it? And I hadn't thought about that. So I said half a million pounds. And Susanna kicked, I remember she kicked me under the table and like, what? what are you crazy? And so Jill said, let me think about it. So two weeks later, I get a letter from her. I think she says, I think the amount you asked for is wrong. I think you're going to need £675,000. So here's the cheque. I said, What do you want in return? She said, Well, you know, when you get to do e-commerce transactions, we want the cable wireless logo and we want to be responsible for those transactions and take the percentage of that cut. And I said, Fine, because I had no idea by that stage how we would do those transactions. So we then took that money. And I built up a little team with Susanna. She then was also pregnant having a baby. And I was not a mother. I was not yet a mother. So I had no patience with the concept of working with a partner who was having a baby. We then went to raise money. And we went to the Atlas Ventures and J.H. Whitney. And in six weeks, we raised seven and a half million because there was such a hunger. It's like because we knew there was no other way, we expected this is how it was. So we did it. and And I, you know now from fundraising. Now I know how difficult fundraising can be. But so we did that. We raised it. I hired very quickly people who I felt had far more knowledge than me. So it was such an interesting time. And I learned a lot from all those experiences. And, and, you know, two years later, the dot-com bubble, we had no way to look at how quickly we were going to get to become, you know, looking at how we'd make money. We had a whole plan, but it was just way too early. No transactions online to justify it. So I had to close it. Suzanne had the baby. And I kind of, that was the first time in my career which I then had baby. I thought, my God, what am I going to do next? Because still, I went back to that feeling, Sam, that I had no qualification. Even though I was learning life experience, you can take away any element of the life experience you don't realize you're learning to think, what can I do?
1: When you describe that moment of going into these investors or the folks you had to present to, did that give you confidence though, knowing that you did have more information that they did? You know, you were on the front lines of this new world.
0: I think it did, you know, I went, there was this um, big online magazine called Red Herring and I remember going to talk to 3000 people. And I remember somebody came up to me the other day who was in that, you know, that was like Brent Hoberman from lastman.com, Martha Lane Fox. There were all these people in that time. And I came across one of the people who was at very early days and he now has Calm, I sat next to him, Calm.com. And he said, Trini, I met you in 1989 because I went to hear you at Red Herring at the conference. And you inspired me, kind of thing. You know, like there was that kind of nearly kind of conversation we were around the same. And I was like, you are an icon to me that you started calm. I mean, I, so it was just. I didn't think at the time how we all felt we were like kids in the candy store. Nobody really knows more than the next man, sort of make it up as we go along, but we know there's something here which is new, you know, and it was that feeling.
1: So what did you take away from that experience that made Trinity London more successful? I mean,
0: so many lessons I learned. I learned that never hire in middle management until you really know each element of the department you're going to hire for. Know everything about Your business, you know, don't delegate too early. You can delegate too late. You can learn never to delegate. There's a very delicate balance as a founder and a CEO about how you delegate. So I think that was one of the biggest lessons. So when we started Trini London, I had myself, I had two interns, I had Mark, who is our COO. We were tiny, and I knew the vision. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew the product. I, I got. You know, that initial in England, you do um, an SEIS and I, I, and I raise money on the basis of that. I raise one hundred fifty thousand pounds. One of the people who put money in was a woman who is um, the head of beauty at Mintel, research company. So she kind of was my mirror to think, is my idea that I want to do portable premium makeup that's personalized to you? You know, I, I knew for me, it's a good idea. And I knew from the 5,000 women I've made over in that 10 years between that moment that I folded that business and the moment I started Trinity London, I knew there was a need. I knew women would love it. I knew those emphatically, Sam. I knew those like every night I went to sleep. But the path to get there was facilitated to me with the help of, you know, Jane was fantastic. So she then said, you need suppliers. You need somebody who can help you manufacture what you're making in your bathroom. You know, so, so she put me in touch with people. I developed relationships. I used that initial funding to then, do that initial development, I then ran out of money. I then thought, what have I got to sell? I sold, collected a vast amount of clothes through through working in fashion for 10 years, and I sold them. And I raised another £60,000, which kept me going for another year. And so when I finally did the fundraising, raised the money that first year, we were maybe 12 people. And when you are somebody who learns on the job and it's your first and second job and And at Trinity London, we look for raw talent. You know, I I literally glide over somebody's university degree when I look at a CV. I glide over nearly everything. I mean, I just want to kind of understand what's their passion, what's their motivation, what motivation have they inherited from their family life, you know, or what have they done because of their family life that's made them more motivated you know instead of hiring in high with somebody with a lovely degree and a knowledge of three other startups in the marketing space or whatever you're going to get much more because there is a integral understanding of what you want your brand to be seen as to the outside world and they get that because they've grown up with it so their ability to transmit that in their work to their team as they grow those teams is so passionate.
1: These are great learnings about the staffing, the keeping lean. I'm really fascinated by product development and how you came to this. So how did you go from fashion? You spent so many years dressing people and really thinking about their wardrobe, but I've read that you've really talked about how makeup is so integral to a makeover, you know, that women's looks, you know, really can often come down to makeup and hair. So what did you think when you first wanted to be in the makeup business in terms of products, what would make you stand out in you know, a competitive industry?
0: I think that, you know, founders come either from a passion of understanding a in the market or that coupled with what they really would want for themselves. And I had acne from 13 to 30. So the, my confidence of, as a woman was very, very low until I was 30. My consciousness of my bad skin made me think, what restaurant should I go to if it has overhead lighting I feel, you know, that kind of feeling you get when you have very bad skin. So I always then I went through terrible journeys of, you know, a more appalling orange fake tan which made me look like I had a pizza on my face to that sort of Moment when I was in Lord and Taylor in New York, age 15, because I had got a good grade for the first time in 15 years. And my godmother took me to the clinic counter in 1976. And it was this, you know, then to me, you know, going into an American beauty counter at that stage when England was so boring and behind, and my mother took me to Boots and got me a literally a cold cream, okay there was that feeling of i can be transformed by this and this thing you moved up and then it was you had these three steps and there was like my, my god skincare has a routine and my god they they look at makeup in this way you know it was like i was like and it wasn't ever about for me you know there are many amazing founders in this space and they all have a different viewpoint all right and some are like you know put on your makeup to to be the master of the world or you know make yourself the person you want to be and transform yourself into a totally different entity with the power of makeup. For me, it's like, how can I be the best me, but still be me? And that was always what I felt as a woman. I didn't want to become somebody else. I wanted to just be able to look in the mirror and feel happy with what I saw, you know, and not feel disappointed by my bad skin or the fact I look sad or, you know, emotion and makeup. They have such a close relationship together. So I felt that needs to really be about how you're feeling as a woman. The first thing, and this is where you know, you do market research, or you—the market research is inside your head. What I discovered is we—we'd done a show in the UK, and it was very ethical. What not to wear, which is then, you know, Stacey London did in the States with with her partner, but because we were pregnant, and so we said we weren't the show of TLC. Not a big mistake. Cause I wouldn't be where I am today if I had said that. So. When I did the show in England, it was very edited. They they wanted that yin and yang. They wanted that kind of Susanna's this and Trini's this. And when we went abroad, because we were more grown up and we knew how to make TV, we kind of more controlled the production of the show. So we had more of a say in the outcome and how it came across. And what we'd always wanted to strive for is to have this emotional makeover of a woman. And in a way, the clothes or the makeup or the hair is secondary, but you see emotionally her movement. And I had 3,000 women's voices inside my head. You know, when I go to the beauty counter, I feel... The woman's too old, too young, has too much makeup on, has too little makeup on. I feel scared to ask her this. I go outside and I look orange or green or brown, too or too pale or too dark. You know, I had this whole information. And whenever I had all these different teams and they would all be fabulous, lovely young makeup artists following a trend. I think you're a founder of an innovative business. You're not following trends, you're inventing them. And so I thought, okay, don't put a red lip on every single person because this woman has, you know, a browner skin, a blonder hair, a greener eye. This woman has a peaches and cream skin and a blue eye and a a brown hair. So why would you do the same thing? And I just thought in the back of my head, I'd love it. And that was that beginning of our match to me technology. That was that moment. And then as I progressed with the brand, I was developing the shades, and I was making the formulation in my bathroom and sending them off to the lab to get them done. I had all these women come through the bathroom and I had this huge physical chart on the wall and I was saying, okay, this is you and this is your skin, hair, and iron. And this is of these 50 products we're making. These are the ones you suit. And that was then turned into our algorithm, which then became much to me. But all those things evolved, you know, all that inspiration came from really all those women just telling me their frustrations.
1: Trini, I love how you just described the customization aspect of the brand. And I think what's so unique is not only that customization, but the portability you mentioned. So would love to talk about that. So I went on your website trinitylondon.com I put in my skin profile, my eye profile and got really customized examples or suggestions of what to pick. And I think that is really fascinating and I'm looking through and saying, "Yeah, I think I could wear those colors." And you sell them in these stackable pots. How did that come together for you? Talk about that process of thinking through how to customize this, you know, what technology to use, especially in an online environment where you might not see the makeup in person.
0: I think that the biggest challenge is that when you think of who am I selling this to, I think the woman I was looking for in all the customers one could look for was the woman who maybe traditionally did shop in store. She didn't always feel considered. She maybe at moments in her life felt excluded for many different reasons. For skin tone, for age, for her character, feeling an personally ex- person. I- I've gone through periods of my life, I'm sure you have too, of just feeling, you know, if you've experienced any sense of feeling sort of excluded from something, you understand so much the importance of to feel included. So I knew that I didn't want to say, this is for 20 year olds, or this is for 50 year olds. I knew I wanted to speak to a woman who thought, I want an extra help. And even though normally I would go to a counter, something by what you're presenting to me is making me think I can trust you more than going to the counter. So how can I create that trust for that person? And it comes, trust comes from two things. And trust comes from an emoti- emotive connection to something, which is more than a female-led brand where the founder is present and she's above the door as well as running the business. Although well, I'd had a, a TV career and I'd had, you know, people around... Who, who knew me, I started again when when i when I broke up it was like a marriage, but when Suzanne and I realized we we'd, had, we'd had, you know spent so many years working together and we were tired as well and I, and I also she wanted to write books I want to start this business, so I sort of started very gently navigating who is that woman out there who feels a connection with what i'm talking about, and those people when I wrote the business plan, it was those people I based my customer on, you know, and I got to know those women as I was building the business before we launched. So when we did the figures and and you know whenever you're a founder and you do figures you think to yourself what do you base them on and you can have a thousand and one matrix to base it on but I thought to myself okay if between 2 and 3% of the people who follow me become a customer that's what I got to base it on and at the moment I had I had maybe 120,000 followers but I thought that's that's what I know to be true I know I can convince them because of how we talk to each other that then Meant that our figures were oddly quite conservative. It took a while for people because that it was a time online where people wanted to see huge growth, you know, and like sort of Casper mattress, you know, just that kind of growth hack, blitzkrieging, all the you know ways that people were talking about just to acquire a customer at whatever cost. And I think I'd always felt I want a customer who whose lifetime value is integral to the growth of our business. So I want to nurture that woman. So I need to get her trust. I need to build that slowly i need to, to come in and think okay technology scares me a bit but i like i want to do that thing and also if she finds that thing hard to do what else can i offer on the site to help her so we started this thing called the Lookbook because i thought there are so many sites where you don't see an image of you on that site whatever it might be selling and i didn't want women to feel that and in beauty you know there's a lot of responsibility which is now being addressed more to just make sure that anyone who visits that site feels included in that journey. We kind of then did this this call out of my Facebook followers. I said, look, will you, any of you come and model for us? You know, because I want real women to come and, and do the pictures. So we had these sessions of getting women in, and some were very uncomfortable in front of the camera, and some were less uncomfortable. You know, a lot of them, it was new for them to do it. Some of them, one of them became, started the model, and she now runs my customer service. You know, I love the beginning of journeys of some of the people who came on those first few weeks doing those photographs. But so we launched with 60 women, not enough at all. We now have 180 in this lookbook, but they go from age 16 to Gail, who is 83, they go from alabaster to ebony skin tone the skin tone is very, very equally spread through. It's not tokenism in any place on that. The more you support, I'm, I'm going on an online site for that woman in her 40s or 50s, and for you know, the much younger audience we have as well, a lot of them actually like to go in store more. So it's like, how can we make this algorithm, how can we make this feel they're really gonna know me? Because the first step is you kind of think, okay, let's make it easy for you to find out your skin, hair, and eyes. It's amazing how many women don't know their eye color, so we had to really work on that. And then we had to attach rules and inclusions and exclusions based upon each product and look at the kind of you know, cool, neutral, warm elements that make up our skin, hair, and eye and attach those rules to the um, imagery and the SKUs, And then from that, we, we created this, this algorithm.
1: But I'm so glad you did because all those elements are so fundamental to the brand, the personalization online, the fact that you show so many ages... And different skin colors and races and backgrounds is everything. I look at the site and I see so many different women looking gorgeous. And not only their final product, but I love how you show women without the makeup to start. I'm so amazed you got them to sit for the non-makeup portraits. with The pictures of them without the makeup, then with just slight makeup, just the foundation, Mm -hmm. then maybe just a lip and then the full-blown look. That is really interesting to me as someone who might want one day to be very natural looking, might want one day to be more made up.
0: But Sam, it's also tricky that because you and I, I mean, you're younger than me, I'm sure, but you and I have generally grown up where we've seen a very one dimensional perception of beauty. So, you know, there's a delicate balance between being aspirational and relatable and being so relatable that you are no longer aspirational. And so, you know, you want to go on a site and think, oh, I could look like that with that. So, you know, Barefaced, we we brought in six months ago because I said, I want to show what it's like before you have the makeup on. because I want to show the difference. I want to say exactly what you, I am in love that you said what you just said, because I've never been in an interview where somebody said that because it's, you know, we've just been trying to get enough. We've had to go back to the old models and get you've taken a while to do all this research. But it's where beauty needs to head, you know, because we have so much going on in terms of the filtering, in terms of the, you know, comparing your how you feel inside as a woman with the perception outside of how everything is presented, and and I think we all know that that can be very damaging. You know, I, I as a woman, I do Botox, I, you know, I dye my hair, I, but that's my choice to do that. I think in the beginning of Instagram, probably I I, I always filtered and um and I made this conscious decision. In fact, I was on a call with a lovely woman who was in a, a TV show in America. I was doing a Friday Twenty. You no, know, I was doing a live with her, and I just said I'd noticed she filtered quite a few of her pictures. She said, "Ages me." And I said, "Why do not we commit to each other now that we'll never filter a picture again?" I said it live on camera to so She's like she was in one of your most famous shows. Okay, she said, "That's really interesting." And I said, "Yeah, could you do that now? Could you commit with me now? Because how re- much responsibility do we have as women in who are fifty-seven to actually say, you know, I don't want to regress, Sam. I don't want to." You know, I'm not going to turn gray gracefully because my gray is like the the color of the, the end of a fox's tail. It's the most horrible color if I revealed it. So I'm not going to do that. I want, you know, there's things I would like to do, but it's, there's a very finite line in all of this stuff. Finding that finite line is difficult.
1: I think you found the balance and it seems like you're also using your social presence to build community so people can come together and again find other real consumers, share their tips. I love that you've taken this community and you actually name certain products after people who are part of your tribes online. So for International Women's Day, you released Sharon, which was a lip to shade named after a woman who had stage four breast cancer. That's powerful. I mean, that is unbelievable to connect with your own consumers that way and you're giving money um, from that product to charity. What's been the reaction to that kind of community building?
0: I think the most overused word of the last years is the word authentic. I cannot bear the word. But I think that when you look at the influence of a community on a business, if you manufacture that community, it isn't really that real. And we had this woman called Kelly in Northwest England, and she followed me i, I think i just launched Trini london one of the first few made to buy the products and she kind of said on facebook does anyone follow Trini london i think it's quite interesting and does anyone want to start a, a facebook page and she took a bit of our logo and put it up and after about four months we saw about somebody in the in the business said there's these these women on facebook and there's these four or five different groups and they've all got one's got a picture of face one's got the trinity london logo and, and they're all talking to each other about you and about the brand and everything so we got in touch with them and said look you know you're obviously enjoying it we're so happy you're enjoying it and they talked about everything you know in a way i think i spearheaded their conversation of whether it was talking about menopause or the latest lip to cheek shade or or you know a dress whatever it was all these women were just so fabulously uplifting of one another that was the amazing thing about nearly like 99.9% of these women so we then said look why don't you you know as these also they started to get lots of people on the pages and then some territories overlapping with others and we said let's help you a bit so that we can just so so one of our team actually now helps them sort of manage these communities and there's now in 16 countries around the world there's 34 trini tribes we then the people who admin these fan pages we said why don't you call yourselves ambassadors and then we said look when whenever we launch something we'll send your you because you're spending all this time adminning the page we'll we'll give you whatever we are launching and and it's up to you to talk about it or not so there's no Financial exchange as nothing. What it is for us is they are our biggest champions and our harshest critics. And I think as a business, you need to hear the truth. You need to know when is something just the heartbeat drum of two very loud people versus this is something we need to listen to. You need to know when you've got something right, why you got it right. You know, so so they're incredible. and, And, you know, a lot of the products initially were named after people in my life who had meant a lot to me. People I've been inspired by. And then it's branched out to people in this community. You know, we have this big thing as women, which is who do you want to be today as a woman? You know, I'm sure you wake up, Sam, and you think, who do I want to be today as a woman? Not who my partner thinks I should be, or my daughter, if you have one, or your mother, or your best friend, or whoever. Who would I like to be if I didn't have any of these constraints? And what I would then say on lives, on my little stories, I say, look, if you want to join a community of women and you're feeling in this time or going through this isolation of, or just like the need for some freshness in your life or, or something that breaks the pattern of the mundanity of what's going on, join a Trinity tribe, swipe up to join the one in New York, swipe up to, you know, and, and we had this amazing growth of the tribe, but it was that, it is that feeling that these women have found through this tribe, they can test out, they can rotest the woman they want to be. And then when they have enough confidence, for women they don't know well who are really supportive, and you know they they for the first time post themselves in a lipstick which they might have never done before, and 10, 20 women say you look incredible. You know they just get this thing, whereas they might have a naggy husband and they might have a teenage daughter who gives them a hell every day and they think somebody is actually acknowledging me and appreciating me and that that fills your heart and when that fills your heart you look at why is your heart being filled so there's a beautiful echo chamber going on and i think that for us is the the the, f- the most important flower to nurture for us as a business because if you don't have a heartbeat of a company you can become very mechanical you can forget your principles of why you develop a business you can forget you know it's like When I look at at where I want Trini London to get to, you know, there are some fantastic founders who go, I want to make X million, or I want to do this, or I want to start a foundation, or I want, you know, everyone has this motivation of what do they want to get to. And I still have that six and a half year old inside my head. I just want a woman to feel really good. And how can I help more women feel good about themselves?
1: I think you built it. I mean, so many companies pay so much money to create those things. And it sounds like you organically... Found those things from your consumers who are already doing that outside the company on their own. And that's really tremendous. And especially right now, you know, when I think about your question, what kind of woman do you want to be? We are sitting here as COVID still rages. We feel like we're back into very bad waves in the United States and elsewhere. Mm -hmm. I want to get through this still. I, I want fortitude to go into maybe another hard period. I thought that was behind us. It's not necessarily. So, your brand can really help people say, okay, I'm going to put on my face today and go out there and face another day and try to really get through this still. So thank you for that.
0: There's something very, you know, for for me, just building a business when you, you know, we went from 60 people to 170 in lockdown. We've hired that many people that, you know, I went to the office today and there were suddenly, you know, 20 people in the office I hadn't met yet. I'd met on Zoom 101 times and they're like a, I mean, you know, they're like a family I, and they are like, it's like so inappropriate. They're like my children. I feel that. <laughs> I just do. I'm not going to not say it would be callistically correct. I do. I feel that. So, um, but it is um, when I look at that broader community, you know, those times when you're, you know, in your position of what you do, Sam, and, and in my position where you wake up some days and you think, do I have the energy, you know? So sometimes when we have that, The last person we call is a friend who would be there at the end of the call for us, because we kind of put ourselves into a hole of thinking, is there anyone I can call about this? Because it seems nothing, yet it's feeling heavy for me. And that's when I got on bloody Instagram and I just chatted and all these women have then left comments and I've thought, I don't feel alone. What they've given me is 3,000 more than what I've given them.
1: What advice would you give young women who want to start businesses and pursue entrepreneurship?
0: I think... It's such a tough one of how do you define what is your inner voice? And I've met many women, all different age groups. We do this little thing called Elevator Pitch on a Friday. And, you know, and you will have met some women in this vision. It's like, I'm going to take over the world. I'm going to do this. And it's like, you think, God, that's fabulous. You know, that total, incredible, nothing can get in my way vision. One percent of them might do it. So how can you take that passion and that breadth they have and help them channel it into something they can actually then achieve it. You know, they can actually do it. Because if, you know, if you talk the talk, it doesn't mean it's gonna happen. I think a big bit of advice I will give is you never know what's behind the closed door. You know, there were times when I was trying to fundraise and I thought I've exhausted all my avenues of the people I know. And then I thought, you know, of those 20 people who didn't email me back, what what what's the problem here? It's that I don't want to email them again. Well, actually. The worst thing to do is not email me back again. So dump your pride in in the trash can in that regard. You know, just go for it. You know, the worst thing that somebody can do is to say no. And so I think it's having that to wake up and face another day. It's like you can do that if you can accept that you don't know what's behind the closed door. So for me, I didn't know one day that I came. To a lunch at J.P. Morgan, that one of the people at lunch would call me up afterwards and say, well, actually not straight afterwards, it was a while later, and say, I think what you're doing is great. I'll actually like to invest. And I, I had, you know, done so many of those things of going to talk to people, to talk about what I was doing, with nothing happening, and then suddenly something connects with somebody, and it, you don't know when that's going to happen. And if you believe in your idea enough, and if you believe the impact it will have to change somebody's life on on any level, then somebody will get it one day.
1: I know you want to take your brand even farther and be in women's bathrooms and bedrooms and other aspects of their lives. Before we go, tell me what are your favorite products, not only the products, but the shades?
0: I wouldn't go a day without doing our BFF Skin Perfector, And you know it's it's a product that I created. And I remember thinking when I created it, I want every woman to wear SPF. And like you put the spinach in the smoothie for your child, I wanted to create a product you want to put on your face. And by accident, you're going to get some protection because you know what? its We need to protect from the sun. So I once thought to myself, when I wake up and I'm tired, I want my skin, I don't want it to be matte and heavy and cakey, double wary. I want it to be glowy and fresh and like I had a good night's sleep. So what can I put in there to make my skin feel that with a tiny bit of coverage, but it's still really my skin? And that is BFF, SPF 30. And we sell one every 50 seconds. Um, and that I wear like medium and I, I wouldn't go one day since I launched a brand without it. And Then probably I have a loyalty to say Lip Glow in Lila because it's my daughter's name. It's not the top seller in lip glows, which guts her. But one of the top top sellers in Sheer Shimmer, which is our lip to cheek, is called Bunny, which is my nickname for her. And I, I wear that nearly over everything. I mean, you know, I put it over on my lips and my cheeks over any color I'm wearing. So it's like my sort of thing. And then all the others, I wouldn't, you know, I couldn't name any names because they're all people very close to my heart. <laughs> um, so it would be difficult. And I, I wear nearly every shade. I, I live in neutral, so I can actually wear nearly every shade in our brand. There are some which are a bit too warm and a bit too cool that I would mix with other colours. But but if you're very warm in your skin here and I, you you definitely suit a third of our shades. And if you're very cool you see two third of our shades and if you sit in the middle you probably could wear two-thirds of our shades but we kind of refine the choice further with match to me
1: that is terrific well I think people are heading for the uh online carts right now so Trini thank you so much for speaking with us love how you're building your business and what you're bringing to women and we can't wait to see more
0: thank you so lovely to talk to you
1: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Trini Woodall, founder of Trini London. And thank you to Trini for sharing her journey and helping millions of women embrace their beauty. I can't wait to get my hands on the Miracle Blur, one of her top selling products. As we close out this episode, I'm thinking of Trini's remarks and asking myself, what kind of woman do I want to be today? The mission of Women on the Move is to help women in their professional and personal lives. Our goal is to introduce you to people with great ideas, inspiring stories, and a passion to make a difference. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe so you won't miss any others. For JPMorgan Chase's Women on the Move, I'm Sam Saperstein. JPMorgan Chase Bank N.A. is a member of the FDIC.